When you know what you want for the future, you need the present to line up with your goals. UCF Online offers more than 100 fully online programs in healthcare, engineering, criminal justice, and more. So you can get to your future and beyond. From the University of Louisville's Delphi Center for Teaching and Learning. And the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning. I'm Kelvin Thompson. And I'm Tom Cavanaugh. And you are listening to TopCast, the teaching online podcast. Hey, Tom. Hey, Kelvin. Did, did you know, and I think you did because you're the one that told me this, that we are number one. Yeah, it's cool. So Every Learner Everywhere has a little ranking that recently came out, and I want to thank them for recognizing TopCast as one of the top, if not the top, podcast in teaching and learning to kind of just check out. So little shameless self-promotional plug right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was nice. Um, I checked first to make sure it wasn't alphabetical, and uh, it wasn't. So, <laughs> so, so there's that. Cool. All right, Kelvin, let's get right to it. What is in the thermos? Well, Tom, no thermos today. I brewed this single cup of coffee just a few minutes ago since I'm remote this afternoon. The exigent circumstances of high spectator traffic around the University of Louisville due to derby prep at nearby Churchill Downs sends us scurrying away from the campus. So in my cup, is a gift from U of L colleague Lauren Bay, who brought me a bag of Taste of Austin coffee blend from HEB's Cafe Ole brand. And looking at my coffee records, that might sound familiar because it's a repeat. Because our colleague Dr. Susan Wegman sent us a bag of this coffee a few years ago when you and I were drinking coffee in the same physical room. So I find it tasty. Uh, I wonder if you can find a connection in my cup to today's episode topic. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with horse racing or the Kentucky Derby. So I don't know. I'm going to punt, Kelvin. Uh huh. Well, I was kind of leaning into the exigent circumstance and the suddenness and the recentness of coming home remotely, making the the cup of coffee right now as opposed to in preparation before and and our normal appropriate process. I was was going with all that stuff. Gotcha. All right. That makes sense now. I get it because we are talking about some emerging, rapidly changing, exigent circumstance kinds of things today. Yes. Uh, And to that point, Tom, you recently interviewed Jarrett Cummings, who serves as Senior Advisor for Policy and Government Relations at EDUCAUSE, and you tapped Jarrett's expertise in discussing, as you say, a timely topic, which is the early 2023 guidance still developing as we record this episode from the U.S. Department of Education related to third-party services or for the enlightened TPS if you prefer. Anything you want to say about the interview before we cut to it? Uh, maybe, maybe I'll just add a couple more acronyms just in case. So TPS, third-party servicers. Uh, um, there's also DCL, which is Dear Colleague Letter. There's OPM, which is um, online program management companies. Um, 
there's like to you, which is a company that is an OPM. Um, I don't know. There's there's probably others, but if if you hear us kind of lapse into jargon, that's what some of those mean. All right. Well, through the modern technological marvel that is podcast time travel, here is your interview with Jarrett Cummings. Well, Jarrett, thank you so much for being on TopCast. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Sure. So um, as we were setting up this interview, we, we did have some sort of late-breaking news about the whole Dear Colleague saga. And um, before we kind of give some of the history, I wonder if you can kind of just recap, like, basically what happened uh, as the time of this recording last week. Absolutely, yes. It was just uh, short of a week ago when the uh, Department of Education uh, surprised everyone and um, in a blog post. So we're, we're continuing the pattern of not uh, doing things through the regulatory process, uh, but in a blog post under Secretary Caval um, acknowledged that the department had received uh, over a thousand comments on its guidance letter. Um, my guess is that the overwhelming majority of those were not uh, supportive of what the department had done. And given the need to uh, review all of those comments, and also in recognition of a point that Educaus, among many others, raised, uh, which is um, that uh, given the uh, expansive nature of the guidance and the scope of the uh, institutional uh, contractual relationships with um, third-party providers, uh, that you would, the institutions would need to, to, to go through in order to determine what con which of those relationships constitute a TPS and which don't. Um, the department uh, uh, suspended the effective date it had given for its guidance of September 1st. It did not replace that effective date. It left that uh, issue to be determined at a later time. And it stated that whenever it did issue a new effective date for its guidance, which it will ostensibly uh, review and revise, that that uh, effective date would be at least six months from the publication of a new guidance letter. Um, so that takes a lot of the immediate pressure off of institutions, um, which otherwise would be scrambling pretty hard to try to figure out all of the various ways this TPS guidance would affect them. It, it also, if, if my memory serves from reading that blog post, uh, it kind of defines what's not included in, in some areas like study abroad or some of the other areas where I know there were a lot of comments, correct? Exactly. And, and in fact, uh, what really sets up that part of the discussion is that um, the, uh, the blog post makes clear that whenever new guidance around third-party servicers uh, is issued, that it will not include the ban on foreign-owned or located providers serving as TPSs. So one of the main problems with the guidance letter that was originally issued back in mid-February is that you take a, a very um, broad, almost undefined set of activities that could make a company that serves colleges and universities in the United States, a third-party servicer, and then you combine it with uh, a ban on foreign-owned or located firms serving as third-party servicers, which was pulled from prior guidance that was meant for financial aid servicers. Um, 
you pull that forward and all of a sudden, um, you know, one of the things we talked about is how that would essentially take one of the major learning management service, uh, learning management system companies uh, serving institutions in the United States out of play. But then for our colleagues at institution or excuse me, at associations uh, for uh, study abroad programs, the recruitment of international students and so forth, they pointed out, you know, given the unbounded nature of the activities that you've said constitute a TPS, how are we going to hire firms in um, overseas countries to support our study abroad programs? How are we supposed to handle the recruitment of international students that aren't participating in student financial aid in the United States in the first place, but still are covered by some of these categories? Um, so that was, uh, I think, another significant aspect of that update is um, acknowledging that um, you know, one, one of the, the opening statements of the original guidance letter uh, is that virtually any aspect of a uh, contractual relationship that might impact the administration of a Title IV program would be considered a TPS. And so that, that listing of um, activities that clearly are not considered TPSs by the Department of Education is kind of an acknowledgement that that sweeping opening statement swept up much more than the department uh, ever counted on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the you know the proverbial dolphin in the tuna net um, in in many ways. So we've kind of we've talked briefly. Uh, we can come back to it if we want. Uh, sort of what was the latest news is, which is significant. But you sort of alluded to the to the original guidance that came out in the Dear Colleague letter back in February. And I, I wonder if we can kind of just jump back to, to the original letter, uh, which, which actually had a May deadline, uh, which got moved to September. But what was the department sort of, what was, what's the intent behind this? Why did they issue this letter and it sort of kind of stuck the stick in the hornet's nest and got all of us sort of worried and concerned. But, you know, the, the Department of Education had a reason for doing this and, and whether we can argue about the execution of how they did it. But I wonder if you can sort of touch on some of the intention behind it. Sure. And, and actually, the um, uh, uh, most interesting uh, problem from the original guidance letter is that technically, um, uh, the guidance letter that was initially uh, released on February 15th was supposed to take effect immediately, although they delayed, to your point, the, the reporting responsibilities for institutions and affected firms to May. Um, but, you know, technically, that compliance was supposed to have been in effect from the moment that guidance letter was issued with all of these expansive problems uh, associated with it. Uh, fortunately, um, the Higher Education Association community, led by our, our colleagues at the American Council on Education, you know, within record time, submitted a request to the department for pushing back those uh, those dates. Um, so they uh, well they they pushed the comment deadline for their guidance there because the original comment deadline deadline was supposed to be March seventeenth, and they pushed that to March thirtieth, and then they pushed the overall effective date for that guidance to September 1st, 
um, creating still problems that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, but in answer to your, your direct question, um, you, can, you can almost look at that original guidance letter in two parts. So the first part is an opening narrative where the department discusses its longstanding concerns about online program management companies and cites uh, a government accountability office report on uh, the potential problems with online program management companies and the department's lack of oversight for those relationships um, as a, a significant concern. And so the department has this whole narrative that, that implies rather strongly that it's concerned primarily about OPMs. And this is consistent with what it has discussed uh, in other areas uh, about the negotiated rulemaking process that it is in the process of launching that was among other things going, that is among other things going to address um, uh, OPMs or third party servicers. Um, however, then we get to the second part of the letter, which is the actual guidance. How is the department actually reinterpreting the third party servicer regulations that have been in place for a long time to encompass these new activities such as software and services, instructional content, student recruitment and retention. And when you get to that second part, which is the bulk of the, the letter, it doesn't pull through any of the references to online program management companies in the narrative. And so you're left with this very uh, expansive uh, review of activities that the department is now saying constitutes um, third-party servicers. And yet the original target was seemingly supposed to be OPMs, but in the absence of something scoping those subsequent categories specifically to OPMs, now we're in a world where an institution has to say, well, it looks like you're telling me any digital contract provider contract I have that firm is now a TPS, and I've got to go through this whole process with that firm to assess that and then determine what responsibilities we both have in relation to the relationship to that. But oh, by the way, if that uh, digital content provider is a foreign firm, uh, either foreign owned or foreign located, um, I'm not going to be able to use them anymore. Um, or if they utilize foreign subcontractors, say we're talking about a, a digital content provider that is U.S. owned and located, but involves foreign sub, uh, subcontractors in the development, delivery, or support of that digital content, well, now they can't continue to be a, a, a third-party servicer to my institution unless they divest themselves of those uh, foreign relationships and find U.S.-based subcontractors. So it just, um, uh, it, it's, to my mind, the way I've been, the way I've been putting it is this is one of those situations where the department knew what it meant. And because it knew what it meant, it left to assumption and implication things that should have been clearly demarcated in the guidance itself so that there was no confusion about how the guidance actually applied. But because they started with part A, 
but then pull that through to part B, we have this very uh, amorphous situation, uh, which was creating a lot of confusion and a lot of concern at our institutions. Yeah, thank you. That That's helpful a lot. Uh, I think not just for me, but for a lot of our listeners, because you know, it, it does seem to ground on the concerns about OPMs. And there is, for those who don't work with OPMs, or even maybe those who do, there's, there's some guidance around, um, you know, you, you can't pay a commission on, on bringing in students to an institution. And you say, but yeah, but isn't that what RevShare is with, with tuition? Um, but there's, there's kind of a, a, a loophole, if you will, um, around that with OPMs where they, um, they, if they provide other value-added services that they don't, they aren't necessarily as bound to some of those, those kind of pay-for-play, you know, anti-fraud kind of um, provisions. And it seems like the Dear Colleague letter was getting at some of that as well, right? I mean, there's, there's been a lot of discussion outside of the Dear Colleague letter in the Congress about that. I know several senators have sort of asked for some information about OPMs, but are these two things sort of tied together? Yes, I mean, that's, the, the department um, under the Biden administration has, has been very clear for uh, quite a while now that it is concerned about what's known as the bundled services exception uh, that stems from some guidance that was issued in 2011, uh, which basically allows for these revenue share agreements as part of the overall package of services that a company may provide to an institution to support its educational programs or in the area that we're most concerned about, its online learning programs. and so there's been this uh, ongoing debate, as you say, uh, regarding whether or not revenue share agreements essentially constitute incentive compensation, which um, you know, has long been banned under uh, federal uh, student aid regulations, and whether or not, as a result, uh, there are incentives for OPMs to essentially hijack the educational programs of their partner institutions uh, to uh, recruit uh, students to these programs uh, that perhaps cannot benefit from them or perhaps are not qualified um, or where they may be uh, uh, trying to recruit them to programs that are not uh, um, of sufficient quality for the students to actually take whatever uh, learning they achieve and apply it in the marketplace. so that's that there's uh, an ongoing debate about that set of issues and so with the guidance letter it seems that um, the department wanted to use very expansive definitions of relevant activities that would be part of a bundled services agreement um, to make sure that it captured um, every possible online program management company, and therefore it could uh, start to understand the range of relationships that might fall under that category and get more information and better understanding of how those activities relate to revenue share agreements. Um, And again, as a result, by not, as I say, pulling through the guidance, 
the focus and the definition around online program management companies, you're left with this very expansive set of uh, uh, activity definitions um, that take companies that otherwise would never be considered third-party servicers and suddenly makes them so with all of the problems that, that go along. So if, as an institution where I work or for others that are members of Educause or elsewhere, you know, what advice do you have for, for us as we kind of, you know, navigate this, you know, continually evolving kind of landscape of the, of the guidance letter and the change in dates and the, now the, the pause that's been put on it and like, you know, how should we be reacting now? Should we be doing anything in preparation for eventual um, um, kind of decisions that might be made down the, down the pike? Um, just curious, kind of like, how can we best get ourselves organized now? Well, I think it is probably still a good idea for institutions uh, now without having that September 1st effective date hanging over their heads um, to take a look at their third-party provider relationships in the areas identified in the guidance letter, um, specifically around, um, you know, software um, systems, services and content to just understand what's there, um, what the, the nature of the existing contractual relationships are relative to the guidance as it has been stated, as yet to be revised. You know, we, we have good indication that's going to be revised, but it hasn't been revised yet. And so I think it's worthwhile to, to continue that evaluation on a more um, uh, thoughtful and um, paced uh, time frame, uh, just to make sure that the institution understands what the range of possible exposure might be if this guidance isn't revised um, in the way that at least the, the update implies. Uh, so, for example, the update uh, implies that the department is going to take a look at clarifying and narrowing the scope of uh, the activities around instructional content, student retention, software and services, um, so that, you know, what the actual boundaries of the effective, uh, affected relationships are um, is probably much more closely tied to the OPM issue that the department is uh, concerned about. But until we see that, we can't know that it's going to be sufficiently clarified and narrowed to provide the relief that we think institutions should have on that issue. So it's probably a, 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 a matter of, um, out of an abundance of caution, I think an institution should continue to evaluate how the existing guidance uh, affects its current posture. Uh, so it'll be in a better position to adapt to whatever the department does in this space. Uh, Secondly, I think it's very important to watch for um, the notice of proposed rulemaking that will come out later this year from the department around its negotiated rulemaking process, which is going to cover a a number of issues, but the third-party servicer issue is clearly one of the issues that's going to be addressed in that negotiated rulemaking process. And the notice of proposed rulemaking uh, in relation to that issue is going to give us a much better sense 
of what the department actually cares about and is trying to regulate. And so hopefully that will give us some more indication of what an institution may or may not need to worry about in terms of additional future guidance from the department on third-party servicers. Cool. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything else that w- that we haven't covered that you think we should we should address before we kind of wrap up? One of the, one of the things that I think has gone under assessed so far in terms of this guidance is that uh, the regulations around third party servicers require contracts between institutions and those providers to address certain elements. And so it's probably a good idea to take a look, and it's spelled out in the guidance letter. So if you just go to the guidance letter, they give you the citation on where those contextual requirements are. It's probably worthwhile to take a look at that. And again, as you're assessing what relationships the institution has that could conceivably be redefined as a TPS, um, making sure you're clear on what those TPS contract requirements are so you can assess, you know, if we had to go back and adjust these contracts to include these requirements, what would that entail? Great. That, that, is, uh, that is good advice. Um, so, you know, more to come, Jarrett, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, job security for everybody who's doing policy analysis these days. Um, thank you so much for, for, your, uh, for your insight and for your advice and your, your wisdom. Uh, I think it's a real benefit for our, our audience. So uh, on behalf of Kelvin and myself, thank you so much for being on TopCast. Oh, thank you. appreciate the opportunity. Well, Tom, that was your interview with Jarrett Cummings. Yeah, I really appreciated the conversation. Jared's a really smart guy, and anytime I have a policy question, he's one of two people I go to. It's Jared Cummings or Russ Poulin, and I'm, I know I'm going to get the answer, and I usually get the same answer. Um, so, yeah, thanks thanks to Jared for breaking that down for us. Um, there's, he did make a reference um, to uh, kind of the number of of like responses that the department got to this when they when they published this dear colleague letter. And um, I want to give a shout out to, to Phil Hill and, and Glenda Morgan on the Phil on Ed Tech uh, blog. If you don't read that, that's another one you should be paying attention to because they've done some really good analyses of this. And they um, did a bit of a, of a, a kind of an examination of the total number of comments and the total number of comments that were positive, like in favor of this action by the department. And there were overall 1,100, I think, uh, comments and it was, it was like fewer than 1% of those who commented were in favor of this Dear Colleague Letters actions from the department. So it was, it was really overwhelming. Um, and a lot of people were anxious about it. And the department clearly kind of heard that with the kind of recent response that they've had to kind of just put everything on pause. Yeah. No, I think that's compelling. And uh, I've already told you what my favorite phrase or sentence in the entire interview was, the department knew what it meant. <laughs> yeah, that's a good line. Thank you, Jared. It's almost like that might go be a bumper sticker. The department knew what it meant. Uh, it's almost like, I said what I said, you know, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. But it, but it was also in the context of, because the department knew what it meant, it assumed that everybody else knew that this is what it meant in this other area where it was not precise and explicit. 
And therefore, we had no choice but to interpret this, this like part two guidance um, in the most broad, like sweeping way that has the biggest impact because you run the risk of being out of compliance if you didn't. Yeah, the inadvertent negative consequences of ambiguity. Yeah, well, you know, uh, we, we like to say, you know, it's, it's good to have some comfort with am- ambiguity. And, and in this case, no. <laughs> we could have all used a little, a little clarity. So we, we've got a bit of a reprieve. That's good. And we can kind of, um, you know, have an opportunity for negotiated rulemaking. Um, the last that I heard was that, and this was said publicly, so I'm not saying anything that's not public. Russ Poulin said this um, at a conference I attended not that long ago, that um, WCET is, is lobbying to put um, uh, Cheryl on the, um, on the negotiated rulemaking um, body. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully that will happen. That's great. They could do, they could do worse. Yeah. Um, Anything else you want to say about the interview before we wrap up? I know um, this was a very full one. Um, I guess we never did acknowledge. We should say that I think I think you two. Uh, I, I think you referenced the time frame, you know, in the midst of the the interview without like a specific date. But I think that was uh, you spoke uh, in mid April. I want to say, and so we're recording this in early uh, May, and it'll release in mid May. So who knows what'll happen next? I know, right? It's only been a couple of weeks and it's just, it's a, it's really evolving. Um, so as far as like a timeline, I think Jared did touch on that a little bit. So it's, it's on pause now. There will be some negotiated rulemaking and then there will be um, uh, at some point a new dear colleague letter or some official regulation or something that comes out. And then um, it'll be a minimum of six months before you have to implement that. So I heard like a 2025 date, it's possible. And who knows, right? If we if we ended up with a new administration in Washington, then what happens to this? So, you know, just fasten your seatbelts, prepare for this at some point, but right now it's not, it's not imminent. I'll say, I'd like to say one other thing though, that um, I've been asked, what do you think is going to happen with this? And I have no crystal ball, but my prediction, I actually heard come out of Russ Poulin's mouth one time. So I thought, okay, he's a smart guy. He's much closer to this than I am. So maybe there's something to it, but you know, given what the, what the department meant originally, which was presumably to kind of put their arms a little tighter around OPM practices and the bundled services exception and to try to like close the loophole a little bit if you considered that a loophole. Um, I think that that's probably what will be the result at the end of the day, that there will be tighter restrictions on OPMs and OPMs in the market are going to have to respond accordingly, whether they potentially move from a rev share model to more of a fee-for-service model. I don't think OPMs are going away, but the but the way they operate may evolve a little bit based upon what the regulators in Washington, D.C. decide to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good comments. Uh, quick plug, um, if policy, if you find that tasty, uh, or if you find it... Um, uh, not tasty, but uh, nutritious, then we might direct you back to prior policy-related episodes like 
Number 28, understanding policy. Number 58, fun with regulations. And number 112, which was a little time limited, but is still entertaining. Breaking news, Sarah and more under siege. You know, go get your policy uh, fix. You want to try to wrap us up and put us on the runway there, Tom? Sure. Yeah, if policy is your jam. Um, all right, so I think I think we would all agree staying attuned to changes and even potential changes in government regulations is part of the job in online education. you got to pay attention, whether it's state authorization or it's this kind of stuff. It, there's always something. Connecting with colleagues and staying actively involved allows us to help influence and be aware of the regulatory landscape. Yep, that sounds great. Well, wish we were sharing this cup of coffee in person. Glad to uh, give you the from a distance uh, video window uh, virtual coffee sharing. And until next time for TopCast, I'm Kelvin. And I'm Tom. See ya.